You're listening to the Apple Insider Podcast. Welcome to Apple Insider, episode 162. I'm Victor, your host. This is not the Apple Cider Podcast. If you're looking for that, please look again. Join us for all things Apple, all things iPod, all things Mac, all things iPhone. Here we are, and I am with Mike Worthley. I mean, I guess if they want an Apple Cider Podcast, we can try and figure something out, but I'm, I'm not sure that we're going to do that just today. Well, so th- this stems from something we talked about last week. Mm-hmm. What we talked about last week is there is a very real problem, and the very real problem is that there is a podcast out there named the Apple Cider Podcast. And As, when you ask yeah. your HomePod, you get that instead of us. And so, I, you know, I'm, I'm, I was talking with Neil. I was threatening to arrange that we get those hosts on and talk all about Apple Cider. <laughs> Let's do that. That sounds exciting. I'm saying. So, that's not this week. This week, we have all kinds of other things going on. Now, I, I want to start with Consumer Reports. And I know you had a tiff with them. Oh, uh, Yeah. But we, we, those, they're, they're the best people over there. They're handsome, they're well-dressed, they're, their nails are manicured, and they have the best opinions. And among those best opinions, this week, they've pegged Apple's iPhone X and 8 Plus as having the very best smartphone cameras. Yeah, it's, uh, this is not a, this is not what I had a problem with, with the HomePod. Not the, at all. This is a case where they took all of their hardware, they evaluated it over weeks and months. Like for instance, they've been beating on the iPhone 10 since November. This is fine. If, if they want to publish something that's got, this is why we came up with this. This is how we tested it. These were our testing criteria and these are our final results. You know what? Fine. Knock yourself out. I literally do not care what opinion you come up with in that regard. Because you presume that they've at least spent time and dedication understanding why that's their opinion. Right. And that's why I had a problem with the HomePod, because they, instead of having it for what I thought was four days, they had it for three hours before they said something about it. So, but in this case, I'll I'll go with it. And it's not just because it's it's positive to Apple, it's because they actually have published criteria on what they did to come up with their opinion on the matter. Right. Now, so my issue with this is that camera views always feel a little suspect to me mm-hmm. because there's a degree of subjectivity to it. It's it's very much, I like that photo better. That must mean this camera is better. And and it's, you know, when you try and, and say, well, what are you evaluating on? Are you evaluating on low light? Are you evaluating on shutter speed? Are you evaluating on grain? Are you evaluating on uh, the trueness of the colors to what the actual item is? Are, you know, there are all kinds of different things. And when you do something like the uh, DxO score, right, DxO mark, where they take all these different things and then they just kind of distill it down to one score and say, well, this thing's the very best. It, it always feels to me like that's a bad way of doing it because it's so subjective. That's, there's a lot of that going on this week now with the Samsung Galaxy S9, which DxOMark has now declared it to be the camera on the top of the world. And there was a discussion from DisplayMate about how the S9 screen is now the best in class in the screen. But when we're looking at the numerical variances that they're pulling out on some of these things, they're so minute between, well, heck, even the iPhone 7, for that matter, going back all the way to the iPhone 7 that I, I think it can be hard for the end user to to gear up a lot of care about it in many ways. The and you're right, anytime in a review where you're looking at a lot of a lot of subjectivity, 
it gets worse whenever you bridge the analog to digital divide. When you take something analog converted to digital or vice versa, there's a, there's an awful lot of, well, I like this rather than this. And in a lot of cases, when you're looking for a venue that, that you like their reviews, you have to look at some of the past ones they've done where they have agreed with you or disagreed with you and base your venue that you're choosing for review on that more than anything else. Hmm. Yeah, but it's, it's, you know, I, th I think it's wonderful. The iPhone 10 has a great camera. I think mm -hmm. it's great that the iPhone 8 Plus has a good camera. The, the iPhone 7 had a great camera too. And we know that at, shoot just empirically from our own experiences. And, and also from the fact that there are movie makers shooting motion pictures on them. Yeah, I'm going to be frank. I'm, I'm pleased that the Galaxy S9 has a great camera because all these companies are kind of in an unholy synergy with each other. Mm. If somebody didn't come up with something better, then company B wouldn't be inspired to do it even better. So Right. We would be all stagnating. Right. Yeah. And and that actually brings me to a really good point. So there was this uh, a tweet that I saw during this past week from a fellow named Paul Kadrosky. And Paul lives in uh, San Diego and is in venture capital. He's, he's uh, who's he with? Let me remember. Uh, SK Ventures. Mm -hmm. And he tweeted that it's as if Tim Cook has only two settings on his Apple innovation meter. Make it way bigger or make it way cheaper. That's a hot take. It, well, it is. But if you think about it, this this follows on the idea that Apple plans to make the 6.1-inch uh, LCD-based iPhone and also a, a iPhone 10 Plus model, right? Innovation is such a funny thing. People say, well, Apple innovates or Apple doesn't innovate or Apple hasn't innovated in years or Apple just did this and it's so innovative. Mm. And the, the term means different things to different people. It, it does. It does. But, you know, one of the comments is that Tim Cook is not a software guy, right? Tim Cook came from Compaq. And Tim Cook understands about hardware and and hardware cycles and just-in-time delivery and all of the things necessary to to do things like that. Now, how do we fill out the product range? Well, we're not going to abandon the low end, so we got an iPhone SE, the whole thing like that. But in terms of making the device better, more useful, all of the things that you look for in it, um, the phone is kind of stagnant. Well, what I mean, if what, you have a two by two matrix of innovation and it says we can make it bigger, right? Or we can make it cheaper. That's, that's not fantastic. Now I'd say that this falls apart. This kind of analysis falls over when you look at where Apple watch is going with health. And if we wanted to talk about health, we could talk about the Apple wellness centers that are opening up. The right? thing is, I don't think it's a binary toggle and I, people will say are talking about innovation. Like it's this big, oh my God, we never expected a product like this to ever come out in our lifetime. So I, I call this the difference between revolutionary and evolutionary, mm -hmm. right? And, and, you know, you do the initial thing and that's revolutionary and then you evolve it over time. But along the way, we want to see something a little bit more than just the evolution of a thing. And I, I would argue that we sort of see that with the removal of the home button in the iPhone 10, but that as is that an evolutionary change or is that a revolutionary change? That's a, it's a question. It's a question of time scale. If you're looking at anything one year to the next, to the next, to the next, to the next, then nothing is going to be innovative or revolutionary. If you look at it in five year chunks, then you all of a sudden now you have more revolutionary products and innovative products. If you look at over 10 year chunks, which for something like mobile is what I think you really need to do or computing for that matter, then 
yeah, there's an awful lot of innovation in those in that 10 year span that I don't think that the computer industry would be that willing to adopt if it wasn't for the for the 500 pound gorilla making yeah. the waves. So here here's an observation. When I walk by an Apple store, I see many many people at the service counter. I see many many people at the watches trying on watches. I see not so many people over at the phone deck counters. There, there are almost no one at the phone tables. Okay. That, that the watch and service seems to be where it's at. Um, you know, on phones, we're reaching the upper limit of size for human form factor, right? There's only so much you can reach on the screen. <laughs> we better evolve but, longer fingers, I guess. Mm. But when it comes to the amount of storage that these, these things contain, I, I think we're kind of finding the limits of minimum size now. And you know what? I actually have a counter view to that. I think we're, you are more able to live with a 16 gig phone now than you ever could before because of the prevalence of Apple Music and cloud services for your photos and everything else. I, I Let don't me disagree, and I'll tell you why. Okay. Uh, in December, I was traveling, and as, as what happens when you get family around you, everyone starts asking questions. And so I, I encountered a number of, of relatives, all with iCloud photo library turned on. Mm hmm. And all whose phones said that they were out of space. They had the 16 gig model and they have iCloud photo library enabled and yet they have no room on their phones. And it's because of photos and videos. Well, I think it's because of videos. I don't think it's because of photos. Uh, looked largely like photos. Mm. I, I, well, there's probably a misconfiguration there because I, let me flip through well, my. I, I point the finger at Apple for the misconfiguration because, because as a user, you should be asked as they are, do you want to turn this thing on? And you say, yes. And that should be the configuration you have to do for it to work right so that you don't run out of storage space. My, I, I'm, I mean, admittedly, my I, my cloud library is complete and pr properly configured. But looking at my iPhone 10 that has pictures dating all the way back to the iPhone Dawn 3G. Yeah, dating yeah. back to the 3G since I've migrated everything over. It is occupying less than a gigabyte of space. That said, this iPhone 10 has got 256 gig. Aha. So and that is a detail that's important. See, uh, these, these are all people on the 16 gig or, or now the 32 gig phones. Um, you know, I happen to have 128 gig, uh, iPhone six, but that's, that's the story is that these people have, you know, sevens and eights with 16 gig or 32 gig and, uh, run out of space and it's photos. Yeah. It's then that's a configuration issue and a user education I issue. I, no, no, I point the finger squarely at Apple on this. They okay. shouldn't have to be educated and they shouldn't have to know anything about configuration. If they've been told that they can go ahead and put things in the iCloud photo library and they accept that, that should be it. Hmm. That should be the end of it. They shouldn't have to be educated about anything more than that if they've already said, put my photos in the cloud. Th this may be from whence I came in computing. It, this may be from a day before when getting on the internet actually you know, took some expertise and some, and some wrangling. Okay. But just because you had to use trumpet windsock in 1993, <laughs> just because you had to have the right win 32 DLL or the, or OS two warp connect to be able to get online. Doesn't mean everyone else should have to do that. We should be better than no, that. No, And I understand that, but bear with me for a second. <laughs> there, there is a responsibility for a user to be a good neighbor, to be a good user and actually decide that they want to get some education on their own about this kind of thing. And you're right. I'm not saying I'd want to go back to Z modem and windsock and, and AT commands and, and extended and expanded memory. Good Lord. No, but I will ATH you right now, man. Yeah. It, 
Yeah, good luck. I'm on Verizon FiOS, so uh, yeah, I know it's AT and T FiOS here. So we've both got the devils. The um, I, I think that computing as an appliance is excellent for information penetration. I think it's excellent in the long term. But I think where we as a community, including Apple Insider, including Apple, including all of our competitors, I think we fall down on education. I, I think we all have a responsibility to our readers, our listeners, and Apple has a responsibility for educating users on best practices on how to use these devices. I, I would say that they Apple has the responsibility to make the devices so that the user doesn't need to have that education. Well, on the other they, hand, when was the last time you walked into a Samsung store and saw the place crowded? Well, now that's interesting that you bring that up because we have a story. <laughs> so Samsung stores, as such as they are, are stores within a store within Best Buy. And Best Buy has announced that they are going to be closing their Best Buy mobile stores. So if you want to... So what happens is Best Buy has the big box stores that are these these sort of standalone kind of stores. And they also have Best Buy mobile shops. And the Best Buy mobile shops are little tiny storefronts within malls, shopping malls. And they are shuttering those. Now, they're going to cease operations for those by end of May. The mobile stores were a big deal for a long time. The way that they came into being was actually through Carphone Warehouse in the UK. Best Buy was was um, sort of in disarray back in those days, right? They had the mobile section in the store, mm-hmm. but they also had the iPod section in the store, and they had the TV section in the store and things like that. And the way that it's evolved has been that mobile sort of rules the roost there now. And so the the iPod and iPhone accessories, instead of being their own section in the store and being their own uh, section with their own buyer and their own their own management within the store, now report into mobile. And that change came as a part of Best Buy going over to the UK, buying up Carphone Warehouse, and then copying the model in shopping malls across America. And it was a very cool thing back when they did it, but you know sometimes with very cool things they outlive their usefulness. Mm-hmm. So. That's where we've arrived at. And and so, yes, you can go into a Best Buy proper, the big box store, and see the Samsung section or see the Microsoft Surface section or things like this. And there are people in there. There are people interested in them. I, I agree. I haven't gone in to see what the crowds are like because, well, the chances that I go into a Best Buy intentionally don't happen very much right now. You know, I know you don't leave the home if you can help it, so... It's the same deal. <laughs> well, I, but, yeah, um, I, I joke about that. I mean, I, I leave the home when I have to, but it's just the... Oh, Neil on the last episode told everyone that he doesn't leave the home unless he can. Yeah. Unless well, he that's New York City. I, I mean, I think if I lived in New York City, I, <laughs> just because of who I am, I think I'd be the same. I think I'd be the same way. But uh, I live in a happy suburb in Northern Virginia. Um, but uh, yeah, it's just circumstances conspiring to stick me here, more or less. Yeah. So that is the news about Best Buy. Best, yeah, Best Buy has been in a buy. tough spot for a while, though. They, they are having problems with showrooming, where mm-hmm. you'll go into the Best Buy to actually compare the products side by side, and then you just go to Amazon and buy it. Well, you, you walk in the, with your Amazon app, and you scan the barcode right, right off of the Best Buy shelf. And that's kind of the, the changing face of mobile, and you can blame a number of, of mobile and, well, and shopping. I and, can, go ahead. I contended for years, and, and I actually wrote a blog post on about this on my, my own personal blog that expired a few years ago. Um, I need to redo that CMS engine. The Best Buy needed to do a few different things. Best Buy had a problem where if you were shopping 
on bestbuy.com, for example, and this was years ago, and you saw a lower price and you wanted to get that price matched at the register in store, you had to not go up to a register. You had to go to the Geek Squad customer service desk and only one guy could do it. And it was a giant pain in the butt to get the price matched so that you could save the, the money you were entitled to get. And what I suggested was that Best Buy needed to go ahead and put barcode scanners on the ends of aisles, just like Target Retail does or, or like Walmart has littered throughout their stores. Not so that you can price check what the thing is in this store, but so that you can price check against what Amazon, Walmart, and a couple of other competitor stores will sell the item for. And then Best Buy just needs to price match that. That follows. I, I, it's just... And if, you, if they want to prevent showrooming, Amazon has to charge sales tax in pretty much every jurisdiction there is now. They can match the Amazon price, and you can walk out with it today for the same yeah. money and not have to deal with your prime shipping for two days or any of that stuff. And the other thing that I thought that they needed to do is they needed to increase store traffic, right? They need to have people come to Best Buy for a reason, and they need to make it not just because you need to buy a thing, but because of product education. Now, I was just arguing against the the need for consumers to get educated <laughs> a moment ago, but but I will say is that as we know, product manufacturers haven't done enough to make that irrelevant. They they still need education around what is what are the things you should look for in a television, right? What are the things that make one better than the other? And I thought that they ought to give mini seminars the same way that Apple does in-store education where you can sign up for one-on-ones and lessons and things like this. And that as a reward for spending your 30 minutes listening to a Best Buy Blue Shirt teach you all about the, the benefits of 7.2 surround sound and why you want one versus a sound bar, they then give you in-store credit that you can spend as a part of buying your super fancy expensive product. Well, I think that conversation needs to be why you want a sound bar instead of sticking with the speakers in your flat screen television. But point the point is taken. Well, sure. But but the point is, is that there is certainly room for educating a consumer on why one product is better than another and using it as a tool to get people to be in your stores. Oh, I certainly agree with you on there. And that's kind of the reason why American Big Box is collapsing. Toys R Us is effectively done. Best Buy is not far behind. It wasn't all that long ago that CompUSA closed its doors. Uh, circ- yes, it was. Well, <laughs> ten, over 10 years ago. Come but they on. operated for 35 years in one way or another before then. <laughs> they got bought by Carlos Slim, who rebranded all of Tiger Direct as CompUSA. Right. And, I mean, there, there's a long saga there. But the problem is, is the, the story is the same with all of these stores. Circuit City and CompUSA and Toys R Us and Best Buy. There is no reason to go in the store. Unless you need Widget X. There's no reason. And it's getting even less. Like right now, if I decided that I needed some fancy HDMI cable, I could call up Amazon. I've got a distribution center 15 miles away and it'll be here today. Mm-hmm. Or I could go to Micro Center or down the street. you can walk into a Target and pick one up for 10 bucks on the end Or I could go down to Micro Center down the street. I'm talking, uh, you know, some kind of, you know, DVI to HDMI or something like that. Not an HDMI. Oh, right. HDMI. Yeah. Or I could go down to Micro Center right now and buy it for $50. Which am I going to pick? I can wait a couple hours for this cable and pay 10 bucks for it. That depends entirely on the level of urgency you have, yes. So, I mean, and that's and that's the problem. You're right. And Apple, I, Apple, I think, sees this. And I think that's why they've got, they're doing the the new, you know, the, the Apple courtyard in their stores. I 
Yeah, no, we, we are not a retail store. We are the public square. And, and you can say what you want about that, but I, I'm not sure Apple cares how much time you spend in the store. I think they'd rather you just hang out in the store, frankly, it, it, in some of the larger ones, at least. I finally have one of the newer ones in Pentagon City here, but Tyson's- yeah, we, we just got the newer, uh, we just got the newer floor Yeah, plan. Tyson's, the, you know, depending on who you listen to, is the first Apple store, and they, they are never, ever going to have the new store. So there's just no room. So going back to the education thing, I mean, this, this well, this has been retail insider. Uh, Thank you for right. joining me, but and, uh, best biking certainly give me a call. Well, th- this all applies to all of us though, because do yeah. we all want to have all of our shopping done in Amazon and all of our shopping done at the Apple store? Is that something as a society we really want? But congratulations, Mike, that's where it is. Mm. I mean, Google shopping is dead as we know it. They tried to partner with Walmart. That's kind of been a mixed success. Walmart's trying to do online with with local store pickup. Um, Instacart is pushing local grocery delivery, especially free month delivery if you do it through um, Apple mm-hmm. Pay. Uh, Amazon launched their 5% back Prime Visa card with Chase where you get uh, 5% back on your purchases through Amazon, of course, but also Whole Foods. Yeah. Well, right. Yeah. Well, the Whole Foods thing I'm hoping is just transition because the Whole Foods around here are a disaster since Amazon took them. Well, so what happened there is that it used to be that Whole Foods had a lot of liberty to order inventory that was unique to their stores and for the people managing those sections to restock and do everything when they felt they needed to based on what they saw going with mm-hmm. the shelves. And Amazon instituted a giant inventory management program that demoralized all of those people and totally screwed everything up. Well, you know, if I want an Echo, I'm good. But if I if I my, want my Whole Foods doesn't actually sell Echo in it. No, that's the only thing I can rely on. I mean, I don't really shop. I'm kind of an Aldi's kind of guy, you know, box one each noodles. But on occasion, mm-hmm. I have to run in there for another family member, and you know, if I I can't guarantee that their organic avocados are going to be in, you know, it's just it's just how it is. At least now. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, that and you know, the avocados are seasonal, so you're not going to have them all the time anyway. But kind of not the point, but okay. <laughs> I, I hear you, but yeah, yeah. The the problem is that you're having difficulty with the the people restocking things or or ordering in, and that's that's the issue. Is that when Amazon instituted this giant program to try and manage it all. Um, they they demoralized the people that were in charge of it and also screwed things up at the same time. It would be one thing if they demoralized everyone, but were more efficient about it. But in fact, they did both and were worse. Well, it kind of goes back to the central point. With Apple being where it is, with the number of, of iPhones it ships in a quarter, what is its responsibility to its owners for education? Or does it end at, here's your iPhone, have a good time? Well, this is uncharted territory. You know, the, it well no it always has ended at that because the very first iPhone didn't ship with a manual a- apple's never felt like user education for that was a big thing until they started doing the in-store classes and that came much much later the in-store classes came around the time of the the gosh i want to say the fourth generation well phone. i think that that shifted when or right around there the fourth generation of phone because because i think with the original iphone they could count on users already being in the Apple ecosystem and already having a certain level of technical ability. I think we were before computing as an appliance like we are right now. So, like I said, now that it's now that it is computing as appliance, now that we have all these iPad 2s that people have been using for 5 years, what's does Apple even have a responsibility for education or should they? Hmm. We all know how to use a refrigerator, but why do we all know how to use a refrigerator? 
Because at one point we were all told how to use a refrigerator. Well, and and there are still rules around that. You know, you can't just leave the doors open and cool. The and you can't house. just put your apples in there and expect them to last for four years. So, and I get that, but we all know these things. We know these things because we either learned them the hard way or we were told at some point. So, where are we on that with the tech companies? Well, I think with the tech companies, the way we define what the interface is keeps changing. You know, we, we've talked about the touchscreen going on for about 10 years, but now I think we're moving, and I keep saying this, that, that voice first is becoming a mm-hmm. real thing. And that there are totally legitimate users whose only interaction with the phone is primarily the voice. And, and you know what? That That's actually okay with me because that actually cuts down on the education other than things like the iCloud settings that we were talking about. Oh, I don't know about an hour ago at this point. <laughs> but it's it's a real thing, right? Where the as the interface becomes more simplified, as it becomes easier to use, it it grows the number of people who can access it. That becomes the way we compute. So what you what you're saying is then is voice control and the iPhone are finally the computer for the rest of us, or they would be if Apple had gotten it right. So anyway, and I'm just putting in digs at Siri there because yeah, these are my shower thoughts this week. So you know now that I'm on the podcast, oh, I get gone. to talk about them. <laughs> Speaking of things that we don't really. Uh, talk about in public a whole lot. AT&T, T-Mobile, Sprint, and Verizon have plans for an authentication platform. They want to add an extra layer of security for people using apps on the iPhone and other mobile devices. And the way they're going to do it is they're going to base it on the phone number. You know, I I understand that the quote that they gave is a cryptographically verified phone number and profile data. So what? You're handing everybody one of those USB authentication sticks they're going to jam in their lightning port? I mean, how is this going to go? The, well, there are USB-C Ubiquis, sure. so I mean, you can you do can, something but like that. that can you but, even imagine the effort that the carriers would have to go through to do that? Well, and what is a cryptographically verified right. phone number? I mean, there, there's a lot here that they're just saying, hey, we've got this new initiative, but we just have buzzwords. We have, we have your phone number, and we're going to hash it, and then we're going to see that that hash makes sense on the other side, and it's verified. So here's here's my issue, and I want to be clear about this because I know when we start talking about security, the waters get muddied, it's confusing. Here's the deal. Using a phone number as a basis for security is oh, a very a, bad idea, oh, and it's man. a very bad idea because phone numbers can be cloned, stolen, impersonated, and and it happens a lot. So it's just this week. You know, as you know, there are a ton of robocalls going around where people get called by a, a computer and ask if they can pitch you something and sell you something, insurance, whatever. You know, there's no problem with your credit card, but please call, you know, all that nonsense. And I got phone calls from a fellow who was a over-the-road trucker asking me why I called him. Well, sir, I didn't call you. No, no, I called you back because you called me. Sir, that's a robot impersonating my phone number. I honestly don't want to sell you anything. <laughs> I don't know who you are and I have nothing I've for had sale. I've a couple of those, I wish yeah. I could help you, but yeah. I can't. And so that's one case, right? That just shows that your phone number can be impersonated by an auto dialer. Fine. The other thing that happened to a friend of mine a year ago is he was an AT&T customer and someone called up AT&T and social engineered them and got them to issue a fresh SIM card in his number. And they stole his account. And once they stole his phone account, they then used that. And for every service that uses SMS as their security authentication method, they stole his Facebook. They stole everything. They got into all of his accounts because that's how people were doing two-factor auth or verification of account. 
I mean, in theory, this is possible, but it require a mass renovation of how the phone exchanges work in the Amer- in the United States. Right. So the security the vulnerability is there, and this is a generally. Yeah, bad I just idea. I just don't see unless they are literally going to spend billions upon billions, probably even approaching a trillion dollars, to rip out everything old and put in everything new. That how this buzzword compliant solution is going to fly. I mean, here, yeah. listen to this. So let me let me let me oh, read yeah, part you're of this. Right? Do the same thing part I was going to Go ahead. So developers will have to submit apps through a blockchain-based system. Internal trials of the technology are slated to start in the next few weeks, whatever. So first of all, there are a couple of problems with that sentence. Developers will have to submit apps to the carriers. Oh, hell no. No, no. We did that in the dark days in the early 90s and, and in early 2000s. And there is no way that I want to have to submit apps to T-Mobile or apps to Verizon yeah. or apps to AT&T or apps to Sprint or apps to O2 or apps to E or, or you know, any of, of the carriers. There's no way because then you have to, as a developer, take on the task of trying to satisfy all these different masters who don't agree necessarily. Forget that. Second of all, blockchain-based. So the blockchain, for people who haven't paid attention to cryptocurrencies, blockchain is a, a way of thinking it as a distributed database where things can only be written to it and not erased. They, but if you need to change something, it can be amended later by using another block of data. And blockchain says this database doesn't run on one central server, but instead is distributed around to multiple computers and they all sync up and agree. And so you you write something to it, it gets stored in the blockchain, and you can verify and audit that it's true based on the agreement of all of the other copies. That's what it's for. So submitting apps through a blockchain-based system does not on its own make a ton of sense, because why does this need to be distributed? What, what are we auditing here that says that that's the one true version of the thing? That's not even my favorite nonsense out of this whole thing. My favorite nonsense is, in addition, advanced analytics and machine learning capabilities will be used to help assess risk and protect customers. Oh, yeah? Like how? How, how, how exactly like, is this so going to work? If we had machine learning capabilities that could assess risk and protect customers, wouldn't right we be using now. it to protect frickin' yeah, malware? Could could we not just like get rid of all the ransomware? The, with the that companies stuff? got together and tried to figure out how they could obfuscate what they're trying to do as best as possible using the longest words possible. I, I don't see this going anywhere. So here's here's what they're trying to do. They they claim they're trying to counter fraud and identity theft. What I think they're really trying to do is is they want to counter fraud because they're liable when when it's been proven as fraud, mm-hmm. right? They don't want to have mm-hmm. to pay out any money. The other thing, and that takes me to my next carrier story, which I'll get to in just a second. So the other thing that they're trying to do is they're trying to get back control that they have lost. They see Apple as holding all the keys to the App Store. They yeah, want those I, keys. I, yeah. They used to have those keys. Can't they get those I think keys that, back? I think you're right. I think that that's what this is about more than anything else. I, I think that this is about trying to wrest some control from Apple and Google. And I think the rest of it is being able to point to this later and say, woe is me, we tried this, but it wasn't accepted. If only the public accepted this. And if only people right. listened to and us. And I yeah, think that's no what kidding. I think those two facts are factors are what this is all about. So I said just a second ago that I was going to get to another carrier story, and this is one that really annoys me. So Verizon in the US, we have four major carriers and a bunch of mobile virtual network network operators. And our four major carriers are AT&T, Verizon, T-Mobile, and Sprint, in that order. And 
AT&T for years had one of the largest networks. Verizon has one of the largest networks. Um, AT&T is still in fights with the FCC over the definition of the meaning of the word unlimited Mm -hmm. because the original iPhone plan was where you bought one iPhone plan and you had unlimited data. And that was great in 2007, 2008. But along the way, AT&T decided they didn't like the meaning of the word unlimited. And so they started figuring out how they could say, well... It, it it applies to some things, but not others. So they, they, for instance, blocked FaceTime video as being FaceTime audio as being a part of the unlimited data. They have been at war with the FCC over this for ages. Um, now it's coming down to their definition of throttling. The issue with Verizon is that Verizon bought years ago the C block of the 700 megahertz spectrum, which is what they're using to power their 4G LTE network. And one part of the deal prevents Verizon from configuring handsets to prevent them from working on other networks. So this is the deal. Verizon, you can purchase that C block of the 700 megahertz spectrum, but you are prohibited from doing anything to your handsets that will prevent them from working on anyone else's network. And so this made Verizon a very unique proposition in the U.S. If you bought a Verizon phone, if you signed up with Verizon or you bought the Verizon phone, You didn't have to worry about getting it SIM unlocked because it was already SIM unlocked by default. And you could just go ahead and drop in an AT&T SIM or a T-Mobile SIM or, you know, God help you, a Sprint SIM. I don't know why you'd want to, but you could. And and the phone is unlocked. And that made it brilliant for international travel, too, because you'd go somewhere, you'd pick up a SIM in an airport vending machine, and you'd drop it in and you'd have a working phone. And you didn't have to fool with unlocks. With AT&T, you have to file an unlock request, and it takes about two weeks. Sprint tells you, no, we aren't going to do that. Um, Sprint does sort of a fake half unlock where they will allow you to do stuff with international travel sims, but you cannot unlock it for use in the U.S. at all. Um, T-Mobile does something where if you have a account in good standing for 45 days or, or 60 days or some ridiculous term, um, they will go ahead and unlock it for you. Maybe. Maybe. If you ask nice. It's not... It's not sure. They are a nightmare. I have had T-Mobile products, and I've tried to unlock with them. And I had a lot of bad luck for a long time. And then I hit the jackpot and found one guy who was helpful and managed to unlock the devices. So, But but that I had to do that was kind of a nightmare. With Verizon, you don't even think about this. It just is. Except that they have decided that they are changing the deal. Unilaterally, they're just changing the deal. And so what, what they're saying their problem is, is that... People know that they sell unlocked phones, and so people go, you know, criminals steal phones when they're en route between retail stores, or they'll just hold up the stores themselves. Now, I haven't seen any, a whole lot of actual mm, news reports I. of this, but Verizon claims that, that there is a store that's been held up, and they don't want their employees held at gunpoint. And so what they're going to do is they're going to lock the phones, which perhaps prevents them from working on other carriers' networks, which is a violation of their terms of the deal with the FCC, and that... When a customer, when a Verizon customer drops in the Verizon SIM and activates the phone on Verizon's network, that it will be immediately unlocked. Now, that's interesting, part because it violates the letter of the terms, and also in part because it's not a full, uh, it's it's something weird about this unlock. Um, Normally, when you have an iPhone that is locked, the carrier has to send a request to Apple and then Apple processes it on their database and unlocks it, and then you have to either erase the phone or you remove the SIM and drop in the SIM again, and then it will go ahead and activate. But it takes about 24 hours for that to happen. Verizon is saying that the minute you drop in the Verizon SIM and activate it, that 
it will be immediately unlocked, which tells me that it's not an, a true SIM unlock. It's something from Hokey Verizon yeah, doing the handset. And I, I pushed back and asked Verizon about this, and I didn't get any executives to talk to me, but I did talk to some customer service reports, people who say that, you know, this is going to happen immediately. You don't have to worry. There's nothing wrong with this. But what concerns me is that once they start breaking the rules and breaking the terms of their deal and doing this, that they can change them again, that that the idea that something that was always without question, period, unlocked, full stop, now has to be explained in these, these couched terms means that they could just decide to make it, you know, 20 days or 40 days or whatever the thing is. And it's no longer I feel like we're in a period with the FCC and the FTC now also for some of this stuff that a lot of the carriers are going to try stuff. They're going to throw stuff at the wall and see what they can get away with and see how far they can push the limits. And I'm not expecting anything consumer friendly from the FCC. It's... Not, without delving too far politically into things, their arguments are a little strange about things, at least surrounding the whole net neutrality concept and reading some of their other decisions about things lately. They're using this. Well, so a Ajit Pai is mm -hmm. the head of the FCC at the moment, and his former employer was, shockingly, Verizon. And so it's, it's entirely plausible that he is doing things that are industry friendly at this time so that after these, the chairman of the FCC, he has a job. Well, I thought Wheeler was going to be a stooge for Cox cable company. Yeah. So, it, it, well, he it, may be, it, I don't he, know. He didn't seem more. to be when he was the head of the FCC. It, it's, I just, the arguments that are being currently used by the FCC are, well, it's in the consumer's best interest when it's actually not at least at present. And, and that's, that's the biggest issue I'm having. And while the FCC hasn't chimed in on this particular incident, they, they are going to have to at some point. And it'll be interesting to see what their yeah. argument on this is going to be. Right. So I, I looked up the terms of the, the deal that Verizon has with the FCC over the C-Block 700 megahertz purchase. And it says very plainly, handset locking is prohibited. No licensee may disable features on handset it provides to customers to the extent such features are compliant with the licensee's standards pursuant to paragraph B of this section. Or, nor configure handsets it provides to prohibit use of such handsets on other providers' networks. It doesn't say that they can be that they can uh, the exception is for phones in transit to stores or phones that have not yet been activated on the network it just says plainly you cannot lock handsets you cannot configure them in any way that would prevent their use on other providers networks yeah i mean, I mean i've i've got That's nothing it. for you here because it's like i said i i think that in the, in the next 2 years we're going to see inching up to the line and seeing how far where the line is and then they'll take the tiniest of baby steps back if they if they step over the line well i i filed Good. an fcc complaint and i encourage our listeners if you're so inclined if you feel like it's something that uh, could affect you in the future if you like the idea of having an unlocked handset and you happen to be on verizon you might also feel so inclined to file an fcc request and it's complaint that what will probably happen from those kinds of complaints is what always happens, which is the FCC reads it, they forward it over to Verizon, Verizon sends someone to call you and tell you why. I think you're being very wrong. optimistic that they're going to read it. Uh, I, in the past, when I used to file FCC complaints against AT&T, they would read them and forward them to AT&T and AT&T would read them and then phone me and tell me why I was wrong. <laughs> and those were about AT&T refusing to unlock the handset. Well, that's a productive workflow right there. <laughs> if you file enough of these things, eventually uh, someone notices. 
I know it doesn't sound like it's a void way of going about it, but you know the FCC knows how many people complain against. I mean, maybe carriers. maybe some of this is perspective for me too. I mean, I'm I'm seven miles away from the center of DC from this chair, and I mean that's like an hour, sure, but seven miles, <laughs> and just the. The just the stream of nonsense that has poured out of DC and the stream of lack of care about citizenry that has poured out of DC since I moved to this location about 20 years ago. Doesn't matter what administration, doesn't matter who's in charge. It's just the the lack of give a crap is astounding. And 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 yeah, Mm -hmm. I'm jaded about it. So Yep. At any rate, if I if I end up becoming known as the guy that files FCC complaints, I I yeah. have no issue defending any of the complaints that I've filed. I don't. They're they're all justifiable. Do your thing, man. I'm on board. Okay. And they were all around SIM unlocking. AT&T for years refused to unlock the phone. And it wasn't until a consumer yeah. complained uh, to Tim Cook that Tim Cook stepped in and said, fine, we're going to have to do this. So there again, we end up with a company solving a problem rather than the, than, than the regulators who are supposed to job to solve. This. Well, to be oh, fair well. to AT&T, when I, when I unlocked a phone in December, it took three hours total from start to finish. So mm-hmm. yes, but the fact that it was locked in the first place is the if problem. You had in, in the, well, but in the days of iPhone 3GS oh, and iPhone yeah, 4, good luck. you couldn't unlock it come hell yep, or high right. water. It was paid yep. off. You had paid off the cost of the phone as a part of your subsidized bill. You'd been paying for two years. You'd paid it off. They wouldn't lower the bill at that time, even though you'd paid off the phone. They just kept taking the money, and that was pure profit for them, and they refused to unlock it. So, yeah, I'm not arguing the point. I'm just talking about today. Yeah, that was why I'd complained at the time. Things not complaining about. So, Dan Dilger, our esteemed colleague here, wrote a piece all about how Apple is taking advantage of their ability to do silicon to make HomePod. And it's it's an interesting piece, you know. We we talk about how no other speaker company had done this in this price range for years, right? We the only thing that we had in terms of being able to sense reflections and delay in sound was using something called Odyssey, A-U-D-Y-S-S-E-Y. Technologies like that where you had a microphone, you placed it in your listening position, and then it would play white noise and pick noise through the speakers and then be able to do the math to help you create a good sound stage. And here they're using the accelerometer and the A8 chip to be able to actively measure the soundstage and set it up right and bring it in at a price point that was previously unthinkable for speakers. This all kind of segues neatly into computing as an appliance, which we were talking about before. I, I have a receiver down here in my tiny little office, and I really don't bother with audio calibration because, well, frankly, it's a 10 by 12 space, and it, it, it won't make any difference at all to speak of. But... The, you say that, but I did the audio calibration using the microphone in my car, and it does. I mean, make I a do difference. have other reasons for that. I mean, I spent five years standing next to some very large pumps with them running all the time too. So I'm not deaf, but they're we're just fortunate. You but can hear me. Uh, yeah, there are certain frequencies that I can't hear worth a darn. In any event, what the HomePod allows you to do, and what Dan has talked about, and now two pieces about this. He actually spoke with Apple engineers about this, so this isn't just something that we we just looked at the tech specs and said, hey, this is in conversations with Apple about this, where you plunk it down and you don't have to go through the Odyssey calibration. You don't have to do any of that. You don't have to put it on the tripod, move it around to different locations. You don't have to do any of that for sound wherever you want to be in the room. And and that's a big deal. And, And at this price point, it's a huge deal. Yeah, it is. And, 
you, you know, it's it's one of those things where I, I see all this sort of merging together. But I, I, I keep saying, even though it's the, the silicon that makes the advantage here, it's the software that really makes it powerful, right? You, you can have this fancy A chip, but um, and, and that's really what's enabled Apple to make it do the things that it needs to do in terms of the, the Sonics. But without the software, we wouldn't be anywhere near where we are. And I agree with you on that. And the fact that the, the software is obviously upgradable, given the fact that there are a series of HomePod beta firmwares over the summer that got gleaned for actually, believe it or not, information on the iPhone X. Um, mm-hmm. th- we're going to be seeing more of this as time goes on. And as far as people are complaining about Siri on it, see also Apple Cider podcast. You, you see how I did that? Nice segue, right? I, nice. Mm-hmm. Very good. Very um, good. I think that most of those problems are going to be rectified, not just on the back end, but in also ongoing software patches on the device itself. Yeah. One of the things that I, I think is still interesting is what I'm calling the sort of Chromecastification of HomePod. Okay. So if you open up in your control center, for example, on um, and, and have a HomePod, if you go to the music panel, the now playing panel, you get, of course, at up top, you'll get by default the music on your iPhone. And then below that, you'll have a, a thing for your Apple TV and a, a different bar for your HomePod. And you can tap on those and control the transport controls and volume on those devices. And so instead, uh, so the way a Chromecast works is that you dictate to it what music should be playing. And you can do that either by voice from a Google Home speaker or by an app casting from, an, from a phone to the Chromecast audio speaker. And then your transport controls on your phone just control the the tracks and but player pause. It's actually pulling the data from the streaming service directly to mm-hmm. the speaker. And that's what's happening here with HomePod is that HomePod is not taking the music streaming first through the phone and then over to the speaker. It's taking it directly to the speaker, but you have the controls on the phone. Yeah. Which is again exactly what Chromecast right. is There's, doing. I, I use this analogy for the iPad as well. I prefer the device itself to pull the music as opposed to something else pushing the music to it. And right. so, and that's what the HomePod is doing. It is, yeah, it, Chromecast. It, yeah, Chrome, sure, I'll, I'll go with that. But it's, <laughs> it, and I prefer that to say AirPlay pushing. Well, it's, the, it's you remove the right. added hop, right? Yeah, and I, you know, this is this is something that seems to have been added with 11.2.5 and it's there for Apple TV and mm-hmm. it's there for HomePod mm-hmm. as well. Pretty trick, huh? Okay, let's let's talk a little bit about cloud because we were talking about cloud before when we were talking about the photo library yep. and things like that. But the story here is that Apple has transferred control of all of its Chinese iCloud data to Guizhou Cloud Big Data. And I'm, of course, mispronouncing that, and I apologize. But this is a server run by a local firm in China, and it complies with local Chinese laws. Do you have any concerns about that? I have a lot of concerns about this, and, and most of it is what my own government is going to do with this information. Not the information itself, but the fact that Apple is willing to move servers to China and have all the data stored in China, and for the most part, accessible to Chinese so, national government. Hang, hang on, hang on, hang on. So, first of all, Apple always wants to store iCloud data in the country that it is serving right. to. 
That that is, if you're in Europe, then your data is held on a European right. iCloud server. If you're in the U.S., your data is held on a U.S. iCloud data server. And in China, then and, and the reason is practicalities, right? Your fastest connection is going to be to right. one that is local. The, yeah, to that you. In, that specifically is not the issue. But my issue is with the retention of the encryption keys. That's my issue. Yes. So by transferring it to a Chinese company that has close ties to the mm-hmm. Chinese government, the concern is that this makes it very easy for the Chinese government to theoretically spy on the iCloud data of Chinese yeah, and customers. And I'm just waiting for Gaudi, who's retiring, obviously, or somebody else, one of his other miscreants. And I say this actually as a Republican. Well, oh, yeah, we'll, we'll discuss that some other day. But We're going to get listener mail. <laughs> Carry on. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm, I'm not a Gaudi Republican. We'll leave it at that. And I'm waiting for one of those guys who has no concept of how data security works to say, well, you know, the United States government needs these keys at all times. And let's start that rigmarole again. It, it's, I understand why Apple did it because they had to, or frankly, no business in China. I don't like that Apple did it. And I think it's going to have consequences ultimately for Apple's relationship with the U.S. government. What that what exactly happens remains to be seen. But I, I, I when as soon as I saw that the encryption keys are being handed to this these Chinese government owned company, I said, "Oh, here we go." I'm, I'm right because then you know that other governments are going that's to right. ask. I'm, to I'm ready for a one plus one equal about seven, and the other governments to just start running with this. And well, well, we'll be here to talk about it. I guess it's just one of those things where I rolled my head, my eyes back in my head so far I could see into time and space. It's it's mm-hmm. just not a good situation. It's not it, it's not a good look for Apple, and it, and it's not a good trend. And, I, and again, I'm concerned. For, I'm not concerned for today. I'm not concerned for my data right now because as a U.S. iCloud user, my data isn't stored on Chinese servers in that regard. But I I just don't I just don't like what other governments are going to decide that they want now. I see. You know, I've I've been giving some thought to this a little bit we've we've had so first of all i watched the uh the tom hanks movie the circle <laughs> which is a, a sort of quasi google and facebook kind of inspired movie that that talks about sharing yeah. and social and and what happens when corporations have insight into all of the social kinds of things not a fantastic movie not especially well liked by critics whatever but but still you know mildly thought provoking especially considering the other things i could have watched fair enough the other thing that ties into that is I've gotten a lot of requests from from our listeners talking about HomeKit and HomeKit accessories and privacy of that kind of information versus the Alexa or Google accessories. Mm-hmm. Uh, that came up in terms of the purchase of Ring by Amazon. Yeah. And Ring is, of course, the doorbell company, the video doorbell company that has promised for ages to have HomeKit compatibility and has yet to deliver. And now with this purchase, I am less optimistic than ever, although their company reps have said on Twitter that that they intend to have HomeKit still. Yeah, they actually, yeah, they actually, just to touch on that really quick, they actually said that it's in certification right now. Mm-hmm. Which tells me that it was probably so far along that it didn't make sense to stop it in light of the Amazon Oh, sure. Purchase. Yeah, I, I have no doubt. And... Where this is going is that Amazon wants, as a company, to be able to have control over your door lock, which is why they have the partnership with uh, Yale for the door lock, and be able to have the camera so that they can walk up and verify that they're an Amazon courier and open your door and drop off packages inside your door. They want to open your house 
and leave their packages there because they one of their biggest problems is that when th- when a package gets stolen off your front porch, they are on the hook for it. Their pat policies are such that they replace it. That's the way they do it. And they would rather not have that, so they just figure they can grant themselves access to your home. And and when I say an Amazon courier, I don't mean a UPS or a USPS or one of those kinds of things. Where Amazon has been purchasing planes, has been purchasing airports, and they're going to run their own courier. Yeah, the guys they roll so up with the, have, uh, with the Enterprise Rent-A-Van. Those, those are the people we're talking about. Right. So, well, eventually they'll just brand their vans Amazon. Sure. They'll just put a put a I'm wrap surprised on. they haven't yet. Yeah. Well, it's early days, but- they they have they have the warehouses they have the airports they have the planes they're going to have the drivers they are going to have your door lock and your camera and they can just roll up and open your house and you know so that's that's a reason why I've been talking with these people about you know you can use HomeKit accessories without installing the app that talks to the data so you don't have whether your door is unlocked going to someone else's server. It simply remains as a Bluetooth device that's controllable inside your network and outside based on the availability of your, your Apple TV or HomePod as a hub for that. Um, you know, And for the truly paranoid, there are things like Home Assistant where you could go out and do everything with a ZigBee or Z-Wave kind of network. And, uh, <laughs> the truly paranoid. Jeez, man. What, am I saying it wrongly? Uh, no. <laughs> I just wasn't. You don't no. like it? <laughs> no, I'm good with it. It's just surprising me. Okay. That's all. Well, but these are the sorts of questions that come up is, is how much data are we leaking? How much data is out there about us? And what do you do to try and make small steps to, to control it? Okay. I mean, here's the thing. I, I'm not, I'm afraid for the future. I don't have any other than the government deciding, well, they're going to drop the hammer on Apple, give us the encryption keys or else. I mean, there's a lot of conspiracy mm. theories about how the FBI listens to everything or the NSA listens to everything. And that that's not actually the case. The, in the case of a court order, the the law enforcement get more information from you from your carrier than in all likelihood they're going to get from Apple. But I'm concerned. I mean, but given the amount of data that's on your phone and given the amount of data that's in the iCloud and encrypted, I, I'm 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 just really really concerned about this. And the government has historically not liked to you know not do that much snooping. And the the whole Snowden revelations talked about that. So I just, I'm not a conspiracy theorist. I don't have a tinfoil hat on. Yes. Yeah, I don't, I don't even think I'm going to get there, but the, the, the problem is. We'll get you fitted The for problem one. is, what, yeah, that's fine. I'll, I'll just have my measurements ready, I guess. Again, my problem is what could be used with this. And it's not a huge technical stretch to get it done. Should Apple surrender those keys to the United States government? Mm-hmm. That's it. I understand. It's a scary proposition, yeah. right? Because your your options for for any kind of device that you could actually say that you have control over are are vanishingly few, right? Yeah, I mean to be clear, this isn't about location information. The carriers give that, and frankly, all of the cameras with facial recognition software all over major metropolitans will, are going to give that up on you anyway. So if, if you think that you're not being watched all day, every day, where you're going and how long you're spending in any given location, yeah, you're you're mistaken well, about that. But it's it's the metadata that goes right. along with that that can be you know, concatenated with that, right? It's the, you were in this location, we saw you in this location, whatever, fine. And you were on the phone at that time to this other person, and you were on the phone for not just five seconds, but you were on the phone for two minutes, so you communicated something, right? right? And it, it all piles up together, yep. doesn't it? It, it? it forms a greater yeah, picture. Yeah, I was going to roll into that, but I think you were more succinct than I was going to be about it. So it works for me. Shifting gears entirely. We went through this sort of app apocalypse a year or two ago where we had to, well, just last year, where we got rid of all the 32-bit apps on iOS. 
And now we're offering tips again on how to see which applications on your Mac are 32-bit because those are not going to be supported in the future. Yeah, here's the deal. And we've done this a few times, but I cannot stress this enough. Apple is making the shift away from 32-bit on Mac OS. Developers have been able to compile for 64-bit for eight years. We ran a tip earlier this week about how to check and see what on your Mac is still 32-bit. Now, there are some Apple stuff on there that's still 32-bit. I'm frankly, I'm a little concerned about the future of DVD player, but I don't really use it. I can see where people would. We'll see what happens. The rest of those 32-bit routines, you don't have to worry about. But all those third-party apps you have that are all 32-bit, yeah, let's find out what the heck's going on with those. Like Steam, for instance, is 32-bit. I'm fairly confident there will be a 64-bit version soon. But just go digging through, take a look at the tip. We're going to link it in the show notes. Just do the check and see what you have that's still 32-bit. And I don't know, maybe ask the developer what their plan is. Right. And so what's interesting about this is that Apple hasn't outright stated that compatibility is going to be dropped completely. But what they're saying is that they'll no longer run without compromise. And so you and I were sort of chatting about what without compromise could mean. And I was I was saying that just as they've done other ways of segregating apps in the past, you know, they, they had the blue box, which was classic in early OS 10, so that OS 9 apps or system 9 apps, as it were, um, no, it was OS 9. System was earlier than that. System 8. No, OS 8. System 7. One of those things. <laughs> you know, Mac stuff from the 1990s. Um, but anyway, they had a classic so that you could emulate the classic environment to run applications on OS 10. And then later, when we made the shift to Intel, we had Rosetta that allowed PowerPC applications to run on Intel at Macs for a little while. Maybe we'll get sort of an emulator environment that allows 32-bit to continue for a little bit longer, but they're going to be clearly I deprecated. don't think so. I, I think how this is going to go is... I th- I'm just using my imagination. I, I, I hope that's the case, because I think there's going to be a lot of stuff otherwise. How I think this is going to go is right now in the High Sierra beta, it warns you the first time if you're running a 32-bit app. I think w- as High Sierra evolves a little bit more before WWDC, I think it's going to warn you every time that you run a 32-bit app. And I think some version of the next version of Mac OS, I don't think it'll be the launch version, but I think around this time next year, it'll be, that's it. We're done with 32-bit apps. We warned you, we told you. So the without compromises, in fact, there's no compromise. You just can't do it. Well, I think the compromise is telling you every time that you're running a 32-bit app and this is not going to be supported forever. I think that's the compromise. Hmm. I don't I don't think there's going to be a bridging solution. I don't think there's going to be an emulator. I think it's going to be just, nope, you're done here. The, the same way that Rosetta was discontinued in the same way that the classic environment was just was discontinued just one day boom done sorry yeah well i mean to be fair the the classic environment thing they they did it with ceremony uh, okay <laughs> but it, yeah i mean there there wasn't a there was the compromise was rosetta yeah true. and it's and at some point these compromises come to an end the, the point is, the day, 32-bit software is numbered on Mac OS, and frankly, there's the, the, the Mac Pro, the original Mac Pro from 2006 was a 64-bit computer. It was 12 years ago. Yep. Let, let's, you know, it's time. And, and yes, software is going to break. Yes, some of your workflows are going to break. Which is a perfect time to examine whether or not you need a Mac anyway and can go to an iPad or something else. Or, or, or maybe a newer Mac, you know, or Ooh. maybe newer software. <laughs> I, I, I understand that you paid for CS2... I'm just seven saying, years ago. I'm just saying that any time that your workflow breaks, that's an opportunity to reevaluate what sure. you're doing. Why not? Why not? You know, but uh, but again, that that Photoshop CS2 you paid for seven years ago is paid for itself, probably. And Adobe wants you to move on to to subscription model anyway. 
No, I'm not normally on Adobe side on this. I am on the 64-bit side. Yeah. Speaking of reevaluating what it is you're doing in life, Apple is placing orders for psychological thrillers to be produced by M. Night Shyamalan. Yeah, okay. I'm not super excited about this. I mean, it, it on, on one hand, it's good that Apple's going crazy with their video ambitions in a yet-to-be-announced product. On the other hand, M. Night Shyamalan, I, I'm not... Okay, let me let me just go ahead and speak about that for one moment. Okay. Obviously, The Sixth Sense. Do we agree on that? I'll go with The Sixth Sense, and I'll even go with Signs. Okay. Uh, the, the worst thing about Signs for me was not the movie itself. The worst thing about Signs for me was that they had these great titles for the trailers that were not used in the actual titles yeah, of the movie. Yeah, and, and that happens these days, right? I mean, there's... Yeah, but, I mean, nuts. Never mind. Okay. Did you watch Wayward Pines? No, I did not. I did. Why? I was not disappointed, actually. That was kind of fun. Okay. So, the thing about Wayward Pines is that the first season was nothing like the second season. And it was such a jump. I wondered if someone else had written it or what happened. But it worked for me. I, I It was a good fun. It was like bubblegum, right? This was, this was <laughs> not a meal. Okay. But it was enjoyable. I liked it. Okay. So, so hmm. unbreakable. Yes or no? Good premise, bad execution. Fair. Um, what about the ones that follow on from Unbreakable, uh, Split? Not a big fan. It's, uh, again, ham-handed execution. Okay. Uh, And we, of course, haven't seen Glass, but that's the idea is that there's sort of this this trilogy between Unbreakable, Split, and Glass. Right. Right. Look, I, I don't have a problem. A lot of people put down Shyamalan's work. I, I think you got to enjoy what you can enjoy out of it. And if you can't find the thing to enjoy, then don't do it. But and I don't. I mean, enough. it's, uh, and uh, like I said, great that he signed great on Apple for getting all this done. I'm pretty excited about the, uh, the amazing stories renovation. I'm pretty excited about Ronald D Moore doing a new space drama. As long as they don't, you know, get all crazy like they did after the second half of Battlestar Galactica. Um, the Reese, the Reese Witherspoon Hello Sunshine stuff. I'm, you know, just not for me. But I'm glad they have not it. Not your so, audience. Yeah. I, you know, like I said, I'm, I'm, I'm glad that Apple is doing this. And again, this goes back to Netflix and Amazon need somebody like Apple. They need each other to up their games, which benefits us in the long run. Yeah. And I'm not talking Apple Insider. I'm talking all of you People. who are listening. It benefits all of us viewers. In the long run. Viewership. Well, and this is one of the things Netflix is working on too, right? Netflix has this huge budget and they are having to evaluate whether they go for a handful of critically acclaimed series or do they try and branch out and do a larger number of things. You know, it's it's not like when you managed a TV network. When you managed a TV network, you knew that you only had 52 Thursdays to work with and you just had to fill the slot on Thursday. Yeah. Right? And that's what you did. Here... You you have a harder time knowing what to buy and how much to buy because are people going to consume sporadically? Are people going to binge watch? And if they are going to binge watch, are they going to binge watch all of the things that you've ordered up? And so you have to figure out a lot more different moving parts and you just don't have that calendar base to work from. People say, and I'm going to delve related to this topic just for a minute, people said that Star Trek Discovery was made to promote CBS All Access. And that may be true to an extent, but I think that CBS realized that it was a different enough Star Trek that if they put it on regular broadcast television, 
it wasn't going to do for them what it needed to do. Hmm. And they, they took a lot of chances with it. I'm not going to delve too deeply into it, but th- there's a fair amount of fan service. There's a fair amount of fan antagonizing. I, I think the only way that it would have worked is on something like CBS All Access. And I don't think that they would have had the stones to do it had Amazon and Netflix not had their own specific dramas that are not on broadcast television. Right. So with any luck, all of these shows that Apple has commissioned are going to do things like that. They're going to take chances that couldn't be taken on broadcast television. Well, I hope that you're right. So we'll see. As with most of the stuff we talk about, we'll see. Well, we will. But I want to talk now about something else. I have a hobby. And and this hobby is something that I've been trying to do on and off for years, and I'm finally just getting around to finishing it up. So I have a um, a third generation iPod, not an iPod Touch, mind you, but a, a third generation iPod, the the one with completely touch capacitive sensing buttons on it. And way back in 2009, it's 30, it's 15 gig actually hard drive died, and rather than go out and buy another Toshiba hard drive for it. I bought an adapter to a complex flashcard, and I had gotten started at converting it over to flash memory and never really finished that one. And now I'm getting down to it, and I'm converting these things over to flash. And I was spurred to do this a little bit by an article that came up over at our neighbors, The Verge. And, uh, you know, so they wrote about taking a fifth generation iPod and converting it over to SD cards and what you need to do to go ahead and get it going like that. Using the third generation is a little bit more difficult because it's a slightly older model, has a different hard drive interface, and I've been having fun doing it. I'm going to post a picture of it here on uh, in this, the, the article for our show notes, and I'll link to the article over at The Verge that talked about it. There is actually, there's, yeah, there's actually a fair amount of venues that will sell you the bits and bobs you need to do this, including new batteries that are higher capacity than so, the, than the original iPod batteries. Here's here's the thing is if you're going to do this don't be like me and take a third generation iPod aim for a fourth a fifth or a fifth uh, what they call the 5.5 which is the same exact model number as the 5 but was so called the enhanced model. You can also go with the classic but the classic with its aluminum front it's harder to open and has a different digital audio converter chip inside that some people think sounds less good. There, yeah, there are a couple of sweet spots as far as capacity, max capacity the unit can handle and things like that. It's worth looking at the chart. And uh, the reason I say stay with the fourth gen is because that's where I've been able to find the, the supply of batteries still exists. Mm-hmm. If you try and go for the third, the battery supply peters out. Um, you know, the iPod mini, for example, is an easy one to upgrade, but the iPod mini has the great DAC for the 30 pin connector, but does not have a good audio path for the headphone jack, people say. So things to consider, but you can easily, easily go ahead and put 256 gigabytes of storage in these old iPods. And because they're flash, they have much more extended battery life Yeah, to be, because they don't have to spin up and down the physical hard drive. Right. To be perfectly clear about this, you are completely out of luck with Apple Music on these. Yes. But if you're using your iTunes library, right. then you're fine. Right. If you've got your CDs that you ripped back on your iMac G4, then yeah, you're, now, you're in good shape. Now, hold on. Hold on. Because let me ask, Apple Music does let you actually download some files to your, uh, to your, to your library, yes or no? It does. Okay. So if you download those and you have them in iTunes on a Mac or PC, it will not, can you not? It will not move over to a hard drive-based iPod. Really? Huh. All right. Things I don't really care about because I haven't subscribed to Apple Music, but there you go. Worth knowing. Um, now, I've been going through the, the fun of – I have all these disparate hard drives from different Macs from over the years oh, and right? different backups Jeez, from over the years. Too. And so I've been using a Synology da- uh, network-attached storage device. 
and using that as the storage for my iTunes library and com- consolidating all of these music files into one massive library. And for everything that's already in there that is um, AAC or MP3, I'm kind of leaving alone. But for all of the things that I have that were FLAC, and for years I had tons and tons of FLAC files, I'm redoing those as Apple lossless so that I will have as, as good sound quality as you can get without just doing something like Wave or AIFF on the iPod. About a couple months ago, I did a piece on using an old Mac as a home server. This is perfect for that. So Precisely. Absolutely. Um, you know, you don't need to necessarily go out and get a Synology NAS, although it's kind of cool if you have it one. It is, yeah. You can so- totally, totally use the, uh, the Mac on your network mm-hmm. for this kind of purpose. And that might actually be easier just in terms of adding files to an iTunes library. Cool. Well, that is all the time we have for this week's Apple Insider Podcast. I've enjoyed it. I sure hope you have too. Please, I have so enjoyed getting the emails and chats and Twitter messages from people using HomeBridge, from people talking about HomeKit. And let us know what problems you're facing and what you want to talk about. We really enjoy hearing from you. Yeah, we're friendly. We don't bite. We're in the forums. We're on Twitter. You know, you can find us. He bites. A little bit. Yeah. Anyway, we'll be back next week with more. I'm Victor. That's Mike. Uh, find us on Twitter or email us at news at appleinsider.com. We'll be back next week with more. 